Let us pray for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Holy Spirit, come now and help us see what Christ is doing in our midst. Enable us to hear him speaking to us in these holy words of scripture. Teach us his ways so that we may tell others of the ministry, mission, and kingdom of our elder brother, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is taken from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The word of the Lord. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here ends the reading of the Old Testament lesson. This is the word of the Lord. I think we've got a slide here, if we could uh, get that picture. This is Brandy Hill. Brandy was a 2013 graduate of Fort Zumwalt High School. An O'Fallon native, she was known to have never argued and she was never in a fight. She was 20 years, uh, 21 years old last May when she and some friends were out celebrating. They were in their car at the corner of Washington Avenue and 11th downtown in St. Louis, and two men were walking west on Washington Avenue about 10.30 p.m. that night, that Sunday night, when these men approached Brandy's red 2015 Dodge Challenger, which was stopped at a signal. According to a probable cause statement, Hill's adult passenger, who was nine months pregnant, became uncomfortable with these men, and she tried to roll up her window, but the intruders had already opened her door. The attacker demanded the car and demanded her car keys and then shot Brandy in the head. The gunman then pushed her out of the driver's uh, side and left her lying in the middle of Washington Avenue downtown. The two men took off in her car, Hill's baby was riding in the back seat, and after a few minutes, they tossed the baby out of the car into the dark in the middle of Glasgow Avenue in North St. Louis. Brandy Hill had a spectacular life, but it was a life that was not treated with respect. It was a life that was not treated as if she had inherent human worth, a life whose rights were violated a life treated as less than sacred, less than sacrosanct. Spectators and friends and concerned citizens gathered around. Could we get the next picture? After the event, they gathered around to share their grief, to protest the injustice of a life that was taken so very young. This is a scene that was repeated 188 times in the city of St. Louis last year. That's 188 killings that police investigated in one year alone. We're going to read the second chapter of Amos. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, 
It's in page uh, 1421, 1421. It's the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos to a culture, really to the church, to Israel, the Old Testament church, who had begun to adopt the values of the cultures around them that treated human life as something less than sacrosanct. It did not value the rights of the poor, the rights of the oppressed. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to read Amos 2 from verse 2 through uh, 16. Uh, or actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to start in verse 6, I think, if that's okay. That may totally throw off the projection. But I'm going to start out in verse 6. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four. Eh, we got it right. Awesome. For three sins of Israel, even for four, God says, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments that were taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine that was taken as fines from the poor. I destroyed the Amorite before them. Though he was tall as the cedars and strong as oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the desert. I gave you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true? People of Israel declares Yahweh the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, a violation of their vow, and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. What do we see here? If we could translate over the centuries, we see here a call to the church, to the people of God, Israel, a call to the church to be an alternate culture, a culture that respects human rights and values human worth. You see, Israel was the Old Testament church, and they were called to be a distinct people, different from the nations around them with a different culture, a culture that was defined by a God who had made them in his image with inherent value, inherent worth, and who had redeemed them in love so that that redemption, that self-sacrificial love and compassion would define their community, a community in which there would be no needy people because they as the church would take care of one another. Yet Israel had begun to reflect the values of those nations, that broader culture around them, and began to view human beings as expendable, as quantifiable in worth. What did that look like in the passage here? Amos points out a number of things. They, they put a finite value on human life. A man's value could be weighed in silver. Some very poor people were valued at the price of a pair of sandals. That meant that they were so desperately poor that that. In buying sandals, they would be 
using all of their, their possessions just to be able to buy sandals so they could walk about. Silver was a sign at the time of loan money. And so they would be enslaved when they couldn't pay the loan that they took out in order to put sandals on the, feets of their, on the feet of their children. It looked like people being used as in the sexual abuse and likely trafficking of the girl mentioned in verse 7 that the father and the son share. It looked like denying assistance to certain classes of people like you see in verse 7. It involved taking advantage of the poor, taking their clothes, it lists, as collateral on a loan. You need your clothes. This, these weren't Americans. They didn't have closets full of, of, of 100 outfits that they go through and cycle through with the seasons. If you were poor, you had one set of clothing. If you gave up your clothing, that meant you could not go out. You could not bear the weather. You were exposed to the elements. It meant you had to live a life of shame. It's all they had. And they would take their clothes off of their back, literally, as pledge. It's all they had. They needed their clothes. They'd never be able to dig out. Human worth was being denied. Imagine a church as an alternative culture within a ruthless culture that takes advantage of people and uses people. Imagine the church as a culture in which human life is treated as having infinite worth. Every life that matters. Uh, why would we say such a thing? Because, because our God tells us in, in, in the passage that was read earlier that he made us in his image in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, he made us according to his likeness. We were created as God-like beings. God in effigy, reflecting the glory and majesty of God, albeit imperfectly in our fallen state, but, but of infinite worth because of the one whose image we bear to represent God and to therefore have significance and value that's not conditioned on what you can contribute to society as if poor lives are worth less than rich lives. Life that's not contingent on your circumstances or on what kind of contribution you could make. Life that is of infinite value regardless of race or nationality. A, a, a tanker full of Somali refugees that sinks is no less precious in the sight of God And no more a tragedy or no less a tragedy in God's eyes and in the eyes of his son Jesus than a tanker full of Mizzou students that sinks to the bottom of the sea. It's universal blanket coverage. It's what's repeated in Genesis chapter 9 when when God says that, that, that to destroy a human being, to shed human blood, he says, is to kill God in effigy. For in the image of God, he says, has God made man. It's what James says in in the third chapter of his New Testament epistle when he says that we speak, that our our tongues, with our tongues we praise God and yet with our tongues we curse men who are made in God's image, in his likeness. It's the reason it's wrong to curse someone because that is a life that is of absolute universal value. If it's a human being, If the human being is alive, then that human being is of infinite worth no matter what they've done because of the one whose image they reflect. It's the foundation for human rights. It's the foundation for human worth and human dignity. 
Uh, I think of the 19th century French uh, professor of, of metallurgy and mining who was quizzing his class about the various things brought out of mines. And he asked his students, what's the most valuable thing ever brought out of a mine? And some of them thought, and they said diamonds. Others, it was platinum. Others, it was rubies. And they brainstormed for a long time. And then this professor explained, no, you're all wrong. The most valuable thing ever brought out of a mine was the miner. Because the miner is made in the image of God. Leslie Newbigin says that human rights, in particular the right to live, he says it's the most fundamental right. A system that deprives that of anybody is a system that's inherently unjust. Imagine the church as an alternative culture within the culture. This is written specifically to to us as believers. We are the Israel of God in this day. We can't force non-Christians to act like Christians. We can't bring utopia to earth through human effort. There is a dark side in human nature. There is a scary underbelly in our hearts that we all have. I know it's in my heart. And given the right circumstances, that scary underside of my nature can come out and show itself in utter cruelty. There but for the grace of God go I. The calling here is to the church to provide an alternative culture a culture that's different both from the right and the left, both from religion and from secularism, a culture that's grounded in reverence for the image of God and human dignity, the honor and love that God shows to every creature made in his image that he wants us to show because of the one whose image they bear that gives them infinite worth, a worldview shaped by the death of his son that gives deference to all people in how we speak about them, in how we act toward them. It's how the church grew in ancient Rome. You know, they they grew, I've talked about this, because in the middle of the night, the Christians would go and they would comb the beaches and they would comb the forests and they would just be listening for the cry or the whimper of a child. You know that sound? Because in ancient Rome, when a child was unwanted, the family had up until the child's first birthday to get rid of the child The way they would do it is they would expose the child to the elements and it would be up to the gods to decide whether the child lives or dies. And it was a crime, a capital offense, to then interfere with the will of the gods by taking that child into your home. And the Christians, already persecuted, already terrorized, already living at times in fear, would go out in the middle of the night to look for abandoned children and they said, we will take your children. We will, at risk of our own lives, bring them into our homes and raise them as Christians because these children, though though a mother forsake her child, yet the Lord's image is still there. He will not abandon us and we will not abandon them. They went into the prisons and bailed prisoners out and brought them into their community to teach them the ways of the gospel. By the year 300, even though Christianity was still illegal, 50% of the population in some Roman cities was already Christian because the Christians had created an alternate culture of love and of life, of human rights and of human worth. Three examples today. I try to get everybody angry at me equally. I will not discriminate against left or right. I know how some of you voted. I don't know how a lot of you voted. That's okay. Three examples where in our context, in St. Louis in 2017, 
we need to say, here are lives that are made in the image of God. And we as the Christians are going to stand with them and love them and support them. I'm going to give you three examples. The first is uh, African-American lives. Black lives are of infinite and absolute value. Every single one of them. And wherever you are with the tactics of peaceful, nonviolent protest or a particular movement, black lives matter. In fact, the one beef I have with the movement is that the phrase is so massively understated. They don't just matter. Black lives are of infinite worth because they bear the mark. They represent God himself. And when you see the face of a 17-year-old black male pulled up on charges and you see his mugshot, you are looking at the image of God. You are looking at a representation of your king and God. And that life is of infinite value, precious in the eyes of God, made by God in his image, according to his likeness, more than matters. And in our context, it's not enough for Christians to simply say that all lives matter. Um, I was slow in understanding this and had gracious brothers and sisters who helped me understand. Because when we just say that all lives matter, uh, we're in a culture that has been saying for 200 years, 250 years, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the plantation owners were saying that. My ancestors were saying that all the time when they were holding people in bondage because of the color of their skin. Because you could say all lives matter. And then in your head there's a footnote that says except these lives. And so it's important for us to articulate that particularly lives that have been treated as less valuable in our culture are particularly precious and valuable because racism, it's pervasive. I, I am a recovering racist. I was born and bred an American. Uh, I once explained to somebody, it was actually, a, uh, they were not American, they were complaining about all of the racism in St. Louis and how racist St. Louis's are. And I tried to explain to them that the, the issue is that there are a lot of Americans in St. Louis And, you know, I know it in my own heart because, you know, for years I've been working on this, that that when I see, um, you know, in the law and order section of the Post-Dispatch, which I read in paper print every single day, and I read of all the murders and all the shootings, and I get really angry sometimes, uh, and I want justice for the victim, and I want to throw the book at the person who did this. And then I see a murder and I see the mugshot, and it's a white kid with blonde hair and blue eyes and freckles, clean cut, wearing a Parkway West jacket. And my first thought is, I wonder what happened in his life that drove him to do that. Was he not loved? Did he not have a mother and father or cared for him? Did he not have a community of people? What horrible thing must have happened to him that would bring out the wicked darkness and evil in his heart such that he would take another life? You hear the difference. All justice over here. Justice with empathy over here. And the difference between throwing the book at them versus empathy 
and wanting to understand that difference is racist conditioning that Greg Johnson was raised with. That difference is the difference of me not recognizing the image of God, reaching out with compassion as well as justice on one side, but the other, a justice that has no mercy at all. And that's what I'm repenting of because I'm realizing that, gosh, I am, I was raised a racist. God have mercy on my soul because black lives are precious to God. They matter. As the family of God, what will it look like for us to be an alternative culture to the surrounding culture, a culture where, where white folks can, can come to see and understand their racial blindness and can confront each other and seek forgiveness, where those who have been treated unjustly in this equation can learn to forgive and to accept and to be in community with those who, who have had privileges that have been denied them. Imagine a community of Jesus followers risking and sacrificing their privilege for those who historically have been denied that kind of privilege. Imagine an alternative culture of self-sacrificial love and where there are victims to stand with the victims. We can't fix the culture outside. With God's help, we can work on the culture inside the church, but wherever there are victims to stand with them. I, I, I remember one member of this church sharing how she had been... Uh, in the Brentwood Target parking lot. And uh, a guy was brought out of Target, Target African-American men, couple cops. Uh, he had been arrested for shoplifting. And as they were waiting for the, the paddy wagon or whatever to come and pick him up, uh, you know, he was in, you know, uh, handcuffs. And, and she walked up to him and, and she just said, hey, I don't want to intrude, intrude but, but would you feel more comfortable if somebody stood with with you through this, because um, I'm happy to just wait here with you just as a witness and to support you in this. Now, she didn't do that because the police officers weren't doing their job. They were doing their job. They were being very professional. They were treating this man with respect. They were doing everything right. She was just understanding that there is history here, and it might be that he might feel more supported or loved with another woman standing by him as he waited for the paddy wagon to arrive because she did not see in the Target parking lot uh, a shoplifter. She saw the image of God, and she offered what assistance she could out of respect for the officers and out of respect for uh, uh, the perpetrator. Uh, You know, I'm not addressing federal or state officials here about matters of legislation. Were I addressing them, I would talk about God's love for black lives and their responsibility as office holders to guard life. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, the church must, must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. The church must be the guide and the critic of the state, but never its tool. But the reality is that federal and state officials didn't show up this morning. They didn't get the invitation. Some of them are celebrating. Some of them are depressed. It's the Christians that showed up. And this is the word of the Lord for the Christians. So I set before you the challenge to create within the church a culture uh, of, of human dignity, of human worth, of human rights as an alternative culture to that which surrounds us. Brenda Salter McNeil tells the story of a diverse group of Christians who traveled across the U.S. visiting some of the places that were known for their racist past. And, uh, and she writes, she says this, she says, 
one of the stops on the trip is a museum with a collection of graphic photographs documenting the horrific lynchings of black people in America. Looking at photo after photo of young black men hanging from trees or mothers hanging with their children with white people often looking on in celebration was intensely disturbing for this group. Most of the members couldn't speak. They got back on the bus in complete silence. There was palpable tension in the air, and finally the white members broke the silence. Understandably, they were eager to defend themselves, to put some distance between themselves and the immense brutality of what they had just witnessed. They hadn't committed these terrible crimes after all, and it was all a very long time ago. And then a black student stood up in obvious pain and yet still calm, collected, and quiet, and announced her conviction that all white people are evil. Shouting and disagreement erupted, and it was unclear how the group would ever be able to move forward from this experience. And and finally, a white female student stood up, and she said this. She said, I don't know what to do with what I just saw. I can't fix your pain. And I can't take it away, but I can see it. And I will work the rest of my life to fight for you and for your children so they won't ever experience that. And she started to weep, and as she wept, her mascara streaked down her cheeks, leaving dark trails. And the bus went silent. And one of the group leaders said aloud, She's crying black tears. She was indeed crying black tears. The black students on that bus now felt that someone identified with their pain and the experience of their people. And it was a profound moment of identification for all of them. I pray this would stretch all of us. For some of you who maybe your proclivities are more toward the social or political right, I hope you will let the gospel stretch you in this to see the humanity that you too would weep black tears for your black brothers and sisters in Jesus and that you would be able to embrace the reality that black lives matter without any caveats or footnotes or qualifications. Now this next bit may stretch some of us who are natively more aligned with the social or political left. Because also within our culture, one cannot talk about human rights and the value of human life without also drawing attention to the lives of the unborn, of the human fetus, uh, which is very much at risk and very precious in the sight of God. I want to be incredibly sensitive here. Um, I don't know anybody who ever really wanted to have an abortion. Everyone knows it's a tragedy. And I've seen the sorrow and the heartache that some of us have felt, the regret at some of our choices. Uh, I've heard some of your stories of the pain and the fear and the dread as you realize you're pregnant and, and maybe there's something wrong with the pregnancy or maybe, maybe you're at a point in life where there's no way you could do this and you watch as your entire life flashes before your eyes. No one in this room is in a position to judge anybody for any thing. We're all sinners, loved by Jesus and washed by his grace. And I'm a sinful man. I'm not here to judge anybody. We preach a cross of a God who rescued us when we were his enemies. 
message of Jesus, of radical grace to all of us who come to him with empty hands believing. I want you to consider the heart of Jesus for the mother whose life is flashing before her, her career is flashing before her, everything about her. And yet I also want you to consider the heart of Jesus for that little tiny embryo growing inside of her, that developing human being, the heart of love and joy and delight that God has in that little tiny developing human being made in God's image, breathing and moving with a heartbeat, precious to God and also of infinite worth, biologically distinct from the mother, human, alive, and yet completely dependent as a tiny little violinist strapped to its mother by an umbilical cord. Think of the way some of your hearts have swollen when you saw the ultrasound of your first child and you welcomed it. You saw the feet and you saw the hands and you then posted it on Facebook. You couldn't wait to show everybody because you knew that was the image of God, that that was something of value. That was a cause of rejoicing. And then I think of the devastation and the loss and the sorrow that some of you have had when you've lost a child to miscarriage or to a stillbirth. I've held a stillborn child in my head and made the sign of the cross on its forehead in ashes and anointed it with oil and consecrated that child to God as one who is of infinite worth. Some well-meaning person comes to you afterwards and says, oh, don't worry, it's going to be okay. You can always have another. And you know they mean well. But it's so blind because that child you will never get back. That child will greet you at the resurrection of all things. That child was unique and precious, made in God's image and of such value. It's it's, it's what you see when the little baby embryo Jesus first meets the fetus John the Baptist. It's recorded in the Gospels uh, uh, where, where Mary, who's in her first trimester, uh, goes and to her cousin Elizabeth, who at that point is about six months along, and, 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 and when, when they greet each other, uh, you know, Elizabeth says, oh my gosh, the moment you walked in the room, the, the baby in my, my womb, John the Baptist, leapt for joy because already this big baby Jesus floating around in Mary's abdomen was already the image of God was already God incarnate, was already fully human and still fully divine and already able to be greeted by John the Baptist. And so the followers of Jesus, you know, this is something where, where I'm not addressing federal and state officials. I'm not talking about matters of legislation here. Uh, were I, I would tell them about God's love for the unborn and about their responsibility to guard and protect every human life Uh, the mother, and the child. But they didn't show up. It's the Christians who showed up. And it's the Christians, the followers of God, the, the people of Israel to whom Amos is addressing his prophecy. The Christians. Imagine the church as an alternate culture in the world, a community in which no one is ever shamed for what they've done, in which believers gather around the bruised and the broken and support them and give 
give their lives to a mother so that she can keep her child. Imagine a community of people hunting down unwanted children the way those Roman Christians did, fostering them and adopting them and supporting them. A a community of human rights and of human worth. The early church saying, we will take them. A community of compassion for women and for children. A friend of mine volunteers in a crisis pregnancy center here in St. Louis, and she shared about a client who had gone to a different center, one that had encouraged her to have an abortion. And, and, uh, and this woman was there. You know, they had performed an ultrasound at this other center, and they confirmed the hard news that, yes, she was pregnant, and it was not planned. And it was going to be, it, it would mean major changes in her life to carry this child, no matter what she did. And so she asked if she could see the screen. She wanted to see the picture. And they refused. And she asked again, and they refused again. And they said, we don't want emotion to influence this decision. And you can understand that they were, they were certainly well-meaning. But she walked out of that center feeling distrusted and disrespected, manipulated, frustrated, And she made her way a few blocks up to a different crisis center. And she requested an ultrasound, and she got it. She wanted to see the picture, and they turned the screen around, and she saw the picture. And as the the picture turned toward her, she could see the legs. She could see the feet. She could see the tiniest little human being floating around inside her belly, tethered to her by an umbilical cord, and her face lit up, and her jaw dropped, and tears came to her eyes, and she cried, Oh, my gosh, that's my baby. Keeping that little baby, what would it require of her? It would require a kind of self-sacrifice that only a mother can understand. Imagine a church that's filled with women like that. An alternative culture where everybody gets respect, where every life is honored, where where radical self-sacrifice for others is the norm. Imagine a church that comes around women like that and provides a culture of support saying, give us this baby. We will take care of your baby. We will help you. If you decide you want to give up the baby, we will help the baby find the right home. We are going to support you through this. You will not be alone. Maya Angelou um, was born and raised in St. Louis. We have a picture of her as well, African-American poet, uh, one of the great women of the 20th and 21st century. She was born here in St. Louis and described the birth of her first and only child, a son named Guy. She says this. She says, when I was 16 years old, a boy in high school evinced interest in me. So I had sex with him just just once. And after I came out of the room, I thought, is that all there is to it? My goodness, I'll never do that again. And then when I found out I was pregnant, I went to the boy and I asked him for help. He said it wasn't his baby and he didn't want any part of it. I was scared to pieces. Back then, if you had money, there were some girls who got abortions, but I couldn't deal with that idea. Oh, no, no. I I knew there was somebody inside of me, and so I decided to keep the baby. And after I tried to hide my pregnancy from my mother, I'll never forget what she asked me. She said, now tell me this. Do you love the boy? I said, no. She asked, does he love you? I said, no. 
well, then there's no point in ruining three lives. We are going to have our baby. She was a Christian woman. She was very loving, she says, very accepting, not one minute of recrimination, and I never felt any shame. She writes, I'm telling you, that was the best decision I ever made to keep my baby. Yes, absolutely. My mother said, remember this, you can always come home. She kept that door open. Every time life kicked me in the belly, I would go home for a few weeks. I struggled, sure. We lived hand to mouth, but it was really heart to hand. See, that's what it takes to keep a baby. Somebody coming to you, some Christian coming to you and saying, I've got your back. I will support you. Whatever it costs, we will walk through this together and we are not going to abandon you. It took a Christian mother giving her the kind of love and protection and support she needed, not just once, but ongoing, again and again, long term. It's a picture of the culture that Jesus wants in his church, the culture he died to create within his people, among his followers that Amos sets before us, this challenge to Israel to create a culture of human rights of human worth, black lives, and the lives of the unborn, and finally the lives of migrants. And for you on the right, again, this may stretch you, but the Bible talks over and over and over again about the alien and the stranger, and we miss what it's saying because of that word alien. You, you meet a French guy at a cafe, and, and he's talking about life back home, but now he's in the U.S., and you say, oh, I see, so you're an alien. No, you say you're an immigrant or a migrant. Um, And so sometimes the terminology, we can miss what's being said when the Bible talks about uh, uh, our call to be welcoming to migrants. Consider the priority the Bible places here. Uh, As a, a people that the Old Testament and New carves out for special protection. In the Hebrew law, the law of Moses, the Israelites' experience of having been homeless migrants in Egypt was so painful and frightening that God commanded us for all time to give special care to migrants. He says this in Leviticus 19. You shall treat the migrant, the immigrant, the refugee who resides with you no differently than the native born among you. Have the same love for them as you have for yourself, for you too were once migrants in the land of Egypt. Exodus 12, there shall be one law for the native and for the immigrant who sojourns among you. You shall not wrong an immigrant or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And in the New Testament, the author to Hebrews says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to migrants. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You say, Greg, I hear you. But some of these people are here illegally. But the Bible doesn't know that distinction. The Bible only knows migrants. The Bible is not concerned about whether they're documented or undocumented. There is even within the Bible a a right to migrate, a calling to migrate, going back to creation. In, In Genesis, when God gave humanity its marching orders and said, fill the earth and subdue it, that's a God calling and even right to migrate. And it, it may not be an absolute right in that there are times when a government, because of plague or whatnot, may have to intervene and, and prohibit or restrict it. Yet, yet in the Bible, the assumption is that we have a right and a calling to migrate. 
And there's not really this distinction between legal or illegal. And the priority is that all of them are treated the same way as the native born. And for the Christians, we have the calling to welcome them in. Jesus said, for I was a migrant and you welcomed me in. You say, when did we ever do that, Jesus? He says, for when you saw the migrant and you welcomed him in, you were welcoming me in. Matthew 25. Um, Imagine the church as an alternative community where migrants know that they are safe, where she has sanctuary, where she receives support and help and respect, if needed, shelter, a community that gives her a voice that's no less valued than anyone else's as a sister in Christ. Imagine a church where, where we don't care whether somebody's documented or undocumented, where our family loyalty is the piece of, as the, as the, the uh, uh, our family loyalty as, as the, 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 the call of God, as the family of God, uh, uh, trumps every other concern, if you will. Uh, you know, she's not a foreign-born or a native-born. She's our sister. She's our mother in Jesus. And if you have a problem with her, then you have a problem with all of us. Because to get to her, you're going to have to get through all of us. And some of us are Republicans, and some of us are Democrats, and some of us are independents, and some of us are frustrated Republicans, and some of us are frustrated Democrats, some of us are frustrated independents. But we're the family of God, and she's our sister, and we offer her sanctuary and protection because she's our sister in Jesus. And when we invited her in, we are inviting Jesus in. Because migrant lives also matter in a day in which migrants are sinking to the, gra- to, the, to the bottom of the Mediterranean in shipping containers, in which they're being stuffed into the back of lorries of trucks without any air and suffocating. God tells the Christians, you can't fix what's out there, but you can be the family of God, the family of God that has an alternative culture of human rights and of human worth. So Greg, how is it possible You've got to realize the audience here. This is a challenge to the church to, to change, to be sanctuary, to be different. And that's only possible when you start with the vertical dimension. Because the way we treat other people is always a symptom of how we ourselves are being treated vertically. You can't step out and self-sacrificially love someone else, particularly not if they're a stranger and you don't know them and they're not a family or a friend of yours. You can't step out and take another child into your home. You can't step out and, 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 and take a migrant into your home and spread your resources thin and expose your children to whatever they may be exposed to unless you know that you have rock-solid security, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He has covered your shame, covered your sin. He is right with you. He has got your back. He is giving you the peace and the security and the confidence to take that kind of risk. Risk requires a foundation of security, and that's why here in this passage, Amos is calling them back to their relationship with God. In verse 9 through 11, he recounts the history of salvation. Am I not the God who brought you out of Egypt? Am I not the one who brought you out of bondage? You are a slave. You are a migrant, and I came, and I let you in. You were the baby abandoned at the side of the road, and I picked you up and raised you as my own. You were the one that everybody scorned, and I identified with you. Is it not true, he asks? Am I not the Lord, your God? I have saved you. I have washed you. I have cleansed you. And it's there at the cross to which this same God went that we see the value of human life. 
The largest life insurance policy ever purchased in the United States was by a Silicon Valley billionaire, and apparently his life was valued at $201 million and some change. That's chump change. What the Son of God was willing to pay for your life was the infinite value of God the Son sacrificing himself for you. Consider the the cost he was willing to pay to rescue even one human life on the cross, the infinite worth of the Son of God offered as tribute to pay for the infinite cost of human life. Here we see the love of God, so infinite, so willingly paid. It's in this cross that we see the sacrifice of God for our salvation. It's the proof of the value of every human life and the foundation of for human rights. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you were the one who saw us alone and you loved us. You saw us abandoned and you took mercy on us. You had compassion upon us when we were far, far from you. When we were the migrants, Lord, you brought us in. When we were the unwanted child, you raised us as your own. You have loved us, all of us. And you have made us to be your family. Lord, make of this church a community of life, of self-sacrificing love, a community of human rights and human worth where every soul is valued, Lord. And help us to stand with victims wherever they may be found. Make us a community that sees your face and is changed by the love that you have shown us in the cross we consecrate to you the elements on this table for the, they're the elements that show us your love, the blood you shed for us, the body you sacrificed for us. So great is your love for your image in us that you gave up everything to rescue us. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.